0: Hey guys, welcome back to the Better and Faster podcast. I'm Nancy Ewawan, your host, and I'm super excited to have you here. On this episode, um, we're actually going to talk to someone who I know really well called Nikita, and she's awesome. And I'm just going to let her do the best job at introducing herself, Nikita.
1: Hey to everyone that's listening. I'm Nikita Ingrata. I'm a product manager and an agile coach as well. I know. How can she be so awesome to these things at the same time? (laughs) I do. (laughs) I've been in product management for about nine years, originally from South Africa. Worked across three different countries. So I've got some interesting experiences over the years. I'm super excited to be here. Just the thoughts of sharing my insights on the way that we can work within an organization faster, better happier. It all is around people. So I'm super stoked to be here.
0: Awesome. So let's just jump straight into it. What comes to mind when I say better, faster and happier organizations?
1: So in my experience, it's all about people. There are so many different stakeholder groups within an organization. You have your business stakeholders who are constantly pushing to get stuff out to market as soon as possible. So fast, fast, fast. You Mm -hmm. have the tech team that are so concerned with good quality because Great to push stuff out in production, but then if there are defects or bugs, it always gets blamed on the tech team. So there's always their concern to have incredible quality. And Mm. then from a product management side and UX side, we want to solve actual customer problems. We want to make sure that the stuff we're building is going to be of value to our end user. So for Mm. me, faster, better, happier is that very fine line, that very thin balance of trying to keep all these different stakeholder groups happy. That's more or less what it means to me
0: that's really interesting, as you were describing those three stakeholder groups, I started to think about how collectively they provide a holistic view on how a company would produce value to its customer on a timely mm-hmm. fashion but still high quality. Maybe we can do a better um like a better job at connecting the dots so yeah. does that make sense?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So normally, I would consider the product management being that connection that line between mm. tech and the business to try and make sure you push back as a product manager when you need to push back using data yeah. and that to make the smartest decisions but also like yeah giving a little bit of leeway to the business and having to do sometimes things <laughs> that are not always comfortable with the tech team so that balance oh my gosh that's yeah that's paramount
0: so I'm curious because you said that you've come from South Africa and you've also have experience there and you've got a vast amount of experience here. So can we get a bit deeper into like your examples of trying to find a balance? What are some examples you've seen out there that I don't, maybe even like a, a good one and a, a pretty bad one?
1: Uh huh. Um, a good balance is always uh, data. Trying as much as possible to make data-driven decisions because that will cut out a lot of the noise if you're getting Mm. pushback from tech and also if the business is asking for unrealistic things. So trying to Mm. as much as possible to use data. And, you know, this is so tricky in all the places I've worked over the last nine years. The data has not been the most reliable. As much as we like to try and focus on GA or um, Adobe, we're not always able to have the quantitative data that we need. Sometimes it Mm. means standing outside Liverpool Street Station, asking a random passerby to look at your app and give you some constructive feedback on it. So that's, I would say, the best way to try and build a faster, better, happier organization because you're building stuff of Mm. value. And one of the not so great ways is sometimes extremely noisy stakeholders. The louder the noise they make, the more they believe you will listen to them. So they might Mm. have this crazy idea, no, our competitors are doing it. That's great, but maybe our competitors have a totally different demographic to what we have. And that I would Mm. find is the worst way because as much as you are trying to be a badass product manager and protect your dev team, sometimes the stakeholders will will be relentless and then you have to unfortunately cave in.
0: That's really interesting because as you were describing the not so great scenario, yeah. I thought of this, I mean, we're going to go very left right now. I was recently listening to a podcast episode, which looks at the inner child of people. And it draws an analogy of how a lot of our leaders, either in organizations or politically When you see them have tantrums or when you see them talking, you can really draw a lot of correlations between their behaviors and that of an infant, so a child. And just the example that you just said about a (laughs) stakeholder basically screaming off the top of their lungs. I just imagine a little kid in a shop saying, I want my toys right now. And that's what I think. There's nothing of value in here. I just, verbal diarrhea, really. I just had that thought when you were describing that. What's like your secret when it comes to dealing with that? I know we're definitely going to go in a bit more detail in the better, faster and happier. But I think seeing as you're on this show, there's definitely a thing or two we can learn from you.
1: How do I deal with the uh, stakeholders that throw their toys out the cart? <laughs> oh
0: yes. Gosh. How do you deal with those
1: ones? It's so tricky because it's so important. To, um, so I've done a, f- uh, a few like, it's sort of like not personality tests. But you remember we did it at an organization we worked at together yeah. that enables you to gauge a person's personality by observing them. So they could be, you know, mm. very like greenfield thinkers, very analytical. Maybe they're quite like process driven or maybe they are more touchy feely. So maybe someone you want to connect with on an emotional level. So I try to mm. use those skills that I learned to gauge the kind of personality and maybe try and influence them depending on that type analytical Mm. greenfields thinker process driven or maybe we go for a coffee a type of informal environment where you can engage with the person one-to-one they're not so threatened Mm. they don't need to prove themselves in front of an audience so it just depends on the personality i guess i've had all different types and it just yeah it's observation and trying to connect with them on a similar level i guess
0: that's great. And it, that actually brings me to a point where I was speaking to an executive and he was basically the, sharing a wisdom that his mother gave him, which is she's a very successful real estate agent in America. Mm-hmm. And her bit of advice is meet people where they are. Yeah. And I think that what you're describing now in terms of observing people's behaviors, understanding their personality, understanding what's important to them by meeting them where they are, you get to speak the same
1: language. And I guess that fundamentally
0: allows you to build trust, which is what you need if you want to. Yeah, absolutely.
1: More than anything, product management is all about influencing people. You have to be humble. You have to be approachable. You don't want to be that person that people can't say no to, or people Mm. can't give bad news to, or people can't approach. You know, so, uh, yeah, it's so important to have that power of observation. And, you know, I say that now, <laughs> but I can almost <laughs> hindsight <guarantee> knowledge. <laughs> you, I can guarantee that when I'm in that situation, I get super stressed out <laughs> yeah. and I do get quite intimidated. But I just try to use those skills to make the most of the situation because you mm-hmm. know how stakeholders can be. They can completely derail, derail you so.
0: Yeah. Speaking about stakeholders, and I'm also curious about the agile coaching side. So when it comes Mm -hmm. to this mission that we find ourselves in, which is to basically make organizations better, faster and happier, what are some of your favorite success stories that you have in your pipeline? So high I plan might do... not be the right word, but basically, like any you know it's really funny, right? As you're doing this podcast, it's almost like you're trying to like limit your verbal diarrhea, sound professionally at the same time. It's like juggling a lot of balls. But so basically, what are some of your recent success stories when it comes to this mission of becoming better, faster, and happier?
1: So you know we were talking about transparency, trust, managing expectations and that? Yeah. So when I was at Expedia, there was this brilliant process and i really really enjoyed the way that the product management team implemented it it was called t642 t being the start of a new quarter or time and then Mm. 642 six weeks before the quarter four weeks before two weeks before the quarter at six weeks the product managers would get together and have a high level overview of what they wanted to deliver for the following quarter two Mm. weeks goes by you hit t4 within those two weeks You're able to discuss with the other product managers and the tech teams what the dependencies are, what the gaps are, what missing information there might be, maybe missing requirements, maybe something you haven't considered. But Hmm. the conversation is ongoing in those two weeks between T6 and T4 so that you identify gaps and you are trying to produce the best quality requirements that your dev team will pick up. Then two weeks before the quarter, you sort of have a finalized roadmap. It's trimmed down based on on the dependencies and risks and stuff and what is technically feasible. And you also do hmm. like a t-shirt estimate to understand from your tech team what you can achieve in your little roadmap that you've trimmed down. And then you can communicate it out to your stakeholders. You can manage your expectations. You can analyze the kind of analytics and data you want to put in. It is such a good process to get stakeholders involved to have the other product managers involved, to have tech involved and communicate out your strategy. So that was something that was so beneficial that I learned at Expedia.
0: What I love about that example is that there is a... I think it's an author and a professor in Canada who wrote the book, The 12 Rules to Live By, Jordan Peterson. Mm-hmm. I know it's a controversial, he is a controversial person yeah. as a, just his presence. But I was listening to one of his talk about how to live a better life. And he made a statement stating, life can be really boring, but if you want to progress, you have to schedule certain things. Yeah. <laughs> Even if it doesn't happen, simply scheduling it, in your calendar, allows you not to forget about it. So what I love about this example is that you're scheduling time out in the calendar to have certain conversations. Yeah. A lot of organizations are just, especially, I mean, OKRs are something you'll see bash around, waving around as like, oh, do we do this? But something I see missing is we don't actually take the time out to talk about them. Like, Take a decent amount of time out to talk about them, mm-hmm. and it's more like, oh, miraculously, out of my black hat with magic, I pulled out the bunny. <laughs> my OKRs have come out, and ooh, magically, all the dependencies have been fleshed out, and ooh, magically, everyone has been informed. Mm. It's like, hello, we don't live in that world. So I really like that example.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. Is that something that you've also kind of brought and introduced as an as a coach to other places? Yes.
1: So that was. Next thing that I was going to chat about, in terms of the that skill, that process that i would learned at Expedia, I actually used it in my first product management gig in Copenhagen. So I took that process and obviously observed the kind of environment, totally different language. Okay, well, we did speak English, mm. but totally yeah. different culture, in a different environment, in a different country, with a different way of working. And trying to implement some of those principles of forward thinking, building a roadmap, having communication with all the different parts of the business, people know what you're working on, making sure you have regular sprint reviews so that your team is acknowledged for the kind of work that they are doing, you know, to give mm-hmm. the developers a sense of gratitude, appreciation from the rest of the organization. So using the T642 planning and agile processes that I'd learned and implementing that as a coach at Novosol was It was mind-blowing, the change in the team trust, in the team motivation, productivity. People were, yeah, people were Mm. feeling value in the work they were doing. So it was great.
0: That's exciting. So tell me a bit more about, you said, so you were in Copenhagen. What would you say is the difference between a company there and a company here from your lived experience?
1: I think the key difference is the ways of working. In Copenhagen, there's a massive work-life balance. It's all over Denmark. People Mm. are not as stressed out all the time that I I find that companies in London are. People are very, very stressed out, overworked. So Mm. the way of working more than anything. And also in Copenhagen, they are quite reserved. So it does take a bit of motivation and a bit of pushing and showing the way as a coach to try and get people to be a Mm -hmm. lot more collaborative, to talk a lot more. So yeah, Mm. just more than anything, it's just a different culture and way of working. Interesting. Mm -hmm.
0: So something else that I love chatting about, which is areas to improve
1: Mm, when it comes to this. Always a controversial one.
0: (laughs) I have officially accepted my title as rebel. (laughs) I don't know what that means for my future, but I will be the one asking difficult Mm -hmm. questions. Mm -hmm. The reason why, I guess, let me provide some context behind why this question. I think When it comes to transparency and when it comes to sharing our learnings, we do a really crappy job at sharing where things basically Mm. didn't go well or where we want to improve things. And it's almost like there is a shame attached to it, but there's so much wisdom In learning about failure because it gives us information, free information that you can't Google anywhere. It basically tells you, this is what you shouldn't do. This is how you did it last time. Don't do it again. Do it this way. So I think that's why there's context behind that and why I find it really important.
1: This is the agile way. It's empirical data, right? It's looking at what we delivered, how we did it, and then looking Mm. forward to how we can improve it, make it better, make it faster, (laughs) like you say, but also, of course, better quality. Yeah. So, the biggest struggle that i have found in my mm. career has been managers unable to empathize with employees that are not of their personality type so i have been in so many places where mm. so say for example you have a manager that is fairly regimented they might be fairly old school making sure that you are at your desk at a certain time you leave at a certain time you make sure you fulfill your hours in a day you're not allowed to work remotely we have to, sort of being seen Is an indication that you are working. Now, for my personality type, I'm a free spirit, right? So I don't mind working in the train. I like to work from a coffee shop that's near the river for a little bit of inspiration, creativity, and a change of environment. Sometimes I could be at work, but I could be working on the roof of the building instead of in the office. And a manager that is fairly regimented will never bring out the best in you if you are getting reprimanded for not following Mm. the way. I always try to think that managers should try to. Find out from their employees or from their subordinates what they can do so that the subordinates provide the best quality work possible. And that is the biggest struggle I have found. What comes to mind when you hear the
0: word empathy in the workplace?
1: Uh, it is being putting your ego aside. It is putting any titles and any hierarchy aside and being able to put yourself in the feet of the person that you're trying to empathize with, I guess that's
0: stupidly hard right because i mean gosh it's the ego it's the ego that got us the job in the first place right because your ego is like oh i want that title so i'm gonna go and apply for that job and then all of Mm -hmm. a sudden you get there and it's like whoa 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 stop take off the ego and then come and join us it's so difficult Um, it's hard it's really
1: hard but it's also like it's like a survival mechanism i guess you know what i mean sometimes yeah go on having that Mm -hmm. ego having that confidence so yeah it's extremely difficult
0: Absolutely. And I think as we are moving towards the future and towards the future of work and what may, whatever that looks like, I think we are certain of a couple of things. And that is, it is going to be hard because there's a lot of ingrained behaviors that we have that we will have to let go of. And that's a really scary place to be in, Mm -hmm. um, especially if it's your coping mechanism. Because as you said, protection, you're trying to protect yourself. But hey, this is where psychological safety becomes really important. Because if you can increase that, then the ego has no place. Yeah. At least yeah. that's the
1: ideal scenario. I mean, yeah. No, I, uh, I'm just thinking mm, that... What What are you thinking? In order to get into a position of a manager, no, mm-hmm. I, I don't know, maybe it's because I, I've not been a manager yet, so I, I'm not sure. But it's a lot about how you handle people. So do you Do you think it could be something in your personality that makes you a better manager, a better leader, not something that you can always learn in a book?
0: I think for some
1: people, Mm. it will come
0: extremely natural, like breathing. And for some people, it will be a hard journey because it means learning a lot of skills that they've never had Mm. to give thought for in the past. So I'll give you a story. There was a developer who I met now three years ago, extremely talented, put them in a room, whack any complex problem to them, and they will solve it for you. So all of a sudden they were told, congratulations, you're now a manager. And he had four direct reportees reporting up to him. He just didn't have the bone in him to manage people and to grow and nurture and to cultivate talent and to amplify people. And it was something he really struggled with. And then down the line, we found out his intrinsic motivation Mm. has nothing to do with growing and nurturing people. And neither is he even interested in developing that. (laughs) So maybe we shouldn't have given him the managerial role. So (laughs) that was a smart decision. But what I'm getting to is that for some people, it will come extremely natural. But for others, it who where it doesn't come natural. I think it's for them to make a decision on whether or not it's something they want to develop and learn. Because there's also nothing wrong with not being a manager, and I think that's something that we have to talk about as well in in some organizations. It's, it's why different. is it that the only yeah. path to progressing is becoming a manager? What you end up having is people who don't want to be managers taking on that role because it's True. the only pathway. Yeah, to-
1: or people growing, taking on the role purely for the title, but not <laughs> with the intention of nurturing anyone.
0: Absolutely. I mean, so here's the thing, right? Why do we only have, and this is me thinking online right now, why do we have probation only for when someone has just joined a company? Why not have a probation period where someone can actually test out the water if this role is really what they want? Because sometimes people have an eye towards a role because it looks nice. And then once they get it, it's not what they want to do, but then they don't know what to do. They don't know if they can have a conversation about leaving it. They don't know. They might feel shame about accepting that "Mm -hmm, this might not be for me. So there's a lot of emotional turmoil that someone goes through once they get into that role, realizing it's not for them. So I'm a big fan in separating introducing multiple paths in career so either you become a specialist and these are people who let's say i want to become a specialist as an architecture mm. i do not want to become a people manager i yeah. want to become an expert in my field so badly but I don't want to become a people manager. And we just have to acknowledge that. And yeah, it comes to your point really well. We need to start understanding personality types, yeah. understanding what are people's motivations and using that to shape where their career grows. And honestly, I hope that day happens sooner because you will see some people who should not be manager roles wake up and yeah. say, oh, really this is not for me. I should go back and do something else.
1: So yeah. If I think about... A lot of colleagues that I know, sometimes even myself, I I leave a role sometimes because of the management style that I'm not able to work with. So you sometimes lose some really good people along, you know, within an mm. organization, some extremely critical, pivotal people because managers, you know, are not empathetic towards different personality types, I think.
0: Absolutely. I mean, if I have to like be super like honest here... I don't see myself as a manager. I see myself in terms of mm-hmm. my career developing into becoming more of a specialist, and but also being able to influence people within that. But I know some people who are just so passionate. I'll tell you something. I ran a workshop about a few days ago and it was a focus group and we were trying to understand what were the needs, the people managers, so we could tailor some of the training programs for them. And one of the person in that group said, we were trying to assess, like, can you give me an example of an effective one-to-one you've had with a mat- with a direct reportee? And this example of this individual brought forward just highlighted <sighs> that he is such, damn it, I was, I was trying to avoid um, <laughs> any identification information, but he shared information that highlighted that this person was just absolutely made for the people manager role. So in his example, he basically said, oh, I just oh, get a buzz amazing. from growing people. Like, I don't want to use my agenda. I They tell me where they want to go and I am their biggest supporter incredible. and cheerleader. That is someone yeah. who's a people manager. And in the same space, we also had individuals who said, well, I have an idea of where I want this individual to go and I want them to go in that direction. So this is where I think we just have to be really careful because it's it's a role that touches people in a very mm-hmm. emotional and vulnerable place because you're managing people and you have to ask yourself if you're willing to step into that responsibility because the impact you have in people's lives in that role is so severe. And I'm yeah. saying this because I've had extremely shitty managers yeah. who've yeah. pushed me to the brink of depression. So that's what I mean when I say some people I just
1: agree. aren't made for it. I really, really think and it's so important for managers to to really assess if that is something that's best for them and best for the people around them that they manage, honestly, because that can make or break <laughs> direct reports, like whether they stay at the organization or not.
0: Yeah, it does. Exactly. You, and it breaks you yeah, as well. You spend it breaks you eight as well as, as the network, manager.
1: So... Five days of the week, most of the time, years and years of your life at work and it has to be an environment where you're going to grow, where you feel valued and you add
0: value. If you think about it, right, you would work, as you said, you work eight hours a day, multiply that by, let's say, 40 years. Like, do you really want to be known to be an asshole for that amount of time? Because I don't know how exhausting that must be. So we just have to have mm-hmm. more candor, radical candor conversations around Do you want to be a manager? If you don't, don't worry. There are other pathways for you to go into where you can become successful. You can build your talent and grow in this company, but you don't have to be a manager. So it's a radical candor conversation. (laughs) Honesty. Honesty. So cool. Just before I let you go, because I honestly, I'm sure between the two of you, we could spend the next two, three hours (laughs) talking about this topic. What are some books at the moment you're reading? That kind of help you open your mind about becoming better, faster, and happier.
1: Um, Another controversial topic, uh, probably because um, when my colleague hears this podcast, he's going to chuckle a bit. When I was in Copenhagen, I had the pleasure of working with (laughs) this incredible agile coach, and he is a very logical, very research-driven, data-driven human being, and he recommended that I read Management 3.0. got to say to you, it fries my brain because I can only read one to two chapters at a time. The book is twice as thick as it is intended to be because of all the post-it notes that I have in it. It's really good. I'm not going to lie. It's backed by so much data and so much research. It provides real clear examples of the point now where I'm reading about intrinsic and extrinsic motivation for your staff, which is why the whole topic of managers, is. we spoke so long about it, because that's where I am about reading people, understanding what you can do as a manager to support them so that they can bring their best work to you. So that's what I'm Mm. reading at the moment. Uh, It's probably going to take me a little while. (laughs) So you slowly get through it. And then after this, I'm going to read uh, Why We Sleep. I believe it's fantastic. Shows you the breakdown in the hours of Ooh. while you are asleep, how your brain compartmentalizes and processes information, then wipes the slate clean so that the next day when you wake up, you're able to use what you've learned the day before and also allows your brain to have capacity to take on new information. Mm. So that's, that's next on my list.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that with us. I said, oh my God, because I love Management 3.0, but I will also check out the Why You Sleep book because... Sleep is really important and we need more of that. So thank you again very much, Nikita. It's been awesome to have you on the show. I hope you enjoyed it as well. And for the lovely listeners, thank you again for dialing in and joining us, whether or not you're listening to us in the corner of a canteen somewhere or in a coffee shop or at work. I hope you feel inspired to go and change your own organizations, your own teams from this episode. And if you're new, please subscribe. It would be awesome to have you part of this journey. We release an episode, at least I try to, once a month, but who knows? I'm aiming to get to a place where we release an episode once every two weeks, which would be epic. Keep an eye out on us. And thank you, Nikita.